your Bibles, 1 Peter chapter 1. You have to take your small victories in life. 1 Peter chapter 1. We've spent the last several weeks in this little letter of 1 Peter looking at the idea of living for God in an ungodly world. We have contrasted our salvation, our inheritance, our hope, which are eternal with the temporary things that this world has to offer. And this same thought will continue today in our text. 1 Peter chapter 1, today we're going to finish chapter 1. We're going to read verses 22 to 25. 1 Peter 1, 22 to 25. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit, in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, through the word of God which lives and abides forever, because all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and its flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Now this is the word which, by the gospel, was preached to you. Early in the 1900s, a story was told about a skyscraper project that was going on in New York City and a building engineer was on top of the skyscraper doing some work and he fell. And as he was plummeting toward what was certainly going to be his death, there was a laborer standing on the ground and he heard the man yelling. He looked up and he sees the guy falling. He understood that the man was going to fall right on him. And he said, well, maybe I can help break this man's fall and Sure enough, the engineer that fell didn't have too many bad injuries. On the other hand, the man that he fell on, the laborer, had life-threatening injuries. Spent several uh, weeks in the hospital, had several uh, life-altering surgeries. He ended up paralyzed for life and crippled for life. And several years later, people asked him, well... Did you ever hear from that engineer again? Did that, ever, did that engineer, did he ever tell you how much he appreciated you? And the man said, well, in fact, he gave me half of everything he owns, including a share of his business. He's constantly concerned about my needs, and he never lets me want for anything. As a matter of fact, almost every day he gives me some token of thanks and remembrance. As I read about that this week, it made me wonder how many of us as Christians who, those of us especially if we've been Christians for a while, have we forgotten that at Calvary and the cross, and Roger, I didn't know you were going to sing songs about the cross this morning, but that's a perfect uh, segue into our message today. Do we realize the price that was paid for us at the cross and at Calvary? Just like that man broke the fall of that engineer, at Calvary, Jesus Christ broke our eternal fall, didn't he? He 
kept us from an eternal death. He, he, he was our substitute. I'm going to give you several scriptures this morning. I'm not going to ask you to turn to them for time's sake. You could write them on your handout and you could go back. I'm going to read them to you. They do fit in with our message. And 2 Corinthians 5.21 is one of those scriptures. For he, God, made him Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. In other words, Jesus took our sin, and he gave us his righteousness. You and I deserve to live eternally in hell as a punishment for our sin. Jesus Christ took our sin, and he gave us his righteousness. Galatians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4 says, Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and our Father. Quite often, we watch, Marie and I, we like to watch police shows. And there will be somebody that will be kidnapped. And there will be a ransom that's delivered to pay the price for that kidnapped person's freedom. Do we realize that before Jesus' death on Calvary, you and I were kidnapped by Satan. We were held in Satan's slavery. We were slavery to sin, enslaved to sin. We were in slavery to sin. We were going to die. Jesus Christ paid the price for our freedom. He broke our fall. And for that, we should be eternally Grateful. This text this morning tells us that because Jesus Christ died for us, then our love and our gratitude for him should be something bordering on supernatural. In a lot of ways, the love that Christians are to have for God and for Jesus and for each other is supernatural. It comes from God, and our text this morning answers four questions about this love. I've entitled our lesson, Things That Last. And we're basically going to be talking about love this morning. But the first question is, when were we able to love? And that's found in the first part of verse 22. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit, Unconverted people, non-Christ followers, lost folks, they can't love like Jesus Christ. It's impossible. The only way that we can love like Jesus is if Jesus allows us to. We were enabled, we were given the ability to love like Jesus loves at the cross. Jesus told the Pharisees in John 5, 42, but I know you that you don't have the love of God in you. Y'all, before we were saved, we didn't either. Before I was saved, before you were saved, before I was born again, before you were born again, we did not have the love of God in us. Now that doesn't mean we didn't do nice things. It didn't mean that we didn't love our families. We do. But before we are saved, we cannot love the way God loves. We cannot love the way God wants us to love each other. 
In Romans 5, verses 1 through 5, Paul tells us, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulation, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. Now hope does not disappoint. Because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Y'all, when we are saved, when we are born again, the Holy Spirit is poured out on us, right? And when the Holy Spirit is poured out on us, when the Holy Spirit is given, on, uh, given to us, one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit is love. And when the Holy Spirit has been poured out on us at our salvation, we have been given the ability to love the way God loves. We have been given the ability to love the way that Christ loves. Notice that, that Peter here says, since you have purified your souls. This idea of purifying our souls, notice that word purified is past tense. It infers something that happened in the past, but still has present continuing results. At salvation, God cleansed us from every sin, right? At salvation, God cleansed us from our past. Our salvation is totally a gift of God. Our salvation is totally a work of God. We understand that salvation, regeneration, is by grace, through faith alone, in Christ alone, right? We understand that. Salvation isn't something we do for ourselves. Being born again isn't following some checklist that says, okay, I've done this, I've done this, I've done that, now I'm born again. Being born again is simply, it's a, it's a work of God. It's something that God does to us. It's something that God does in us. Notice that Peter also says that you've purified your souls in obeying the truth. Through the Spirit. Peter defines what saving faith looks like. Saving faith is obedience to the truth. You say, well, what's the truth? John 14, verse 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to my Father except by me. Jesus also says in John 17, 17, that we are sanctified by truth. Thy word is truth. Well, what, is, what do we obey? This obedience that Peter's talking about, it's not a work of man. What our obedience to the truth is, is understanding we're sinners. Understanding we can't save ourselves. We say, Lord, I'm a sinner. I'm tired of running from you. I'm running to you. I believe Jesus Christ is exactly who he says he is. I believe Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins. And I believe that is enough to save me. God save me. That is obedience to the truth. And that is totally a work of God. The only way you and I understand that we are sinners, it doesn't come from our intellect. It comes from a, it's a gift of God. It's grace God gives us to be able to understand that. 
Obeying the truth. That's purifying our souls. That's what that means. An inherited element of saving faith is obedience. Remember 1 Peter 1 verse 2. Back in the last chapter. Peter says that we as Christians are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and sanctification of the Spirit for obedience. The Spirit enables us to obey. This obedience is the difference in head knowledge. Did y'all know that the demons and Satan and the devil know exactly who Jesus is? They believe Jesus is the Son of God. James 2 verse 19 tells us that the devils, the demons, believe and tremble. But they're not saved because they never had a heart change. They're not saved because they never submitted their will to God's will. They never did what Titus verse 3 and 5, chapter 3 verse 5 tells us. They've never been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. They've never been given a new life. Now they know who Jesus is. Satan's an excellent theologian. But his eternity awaits for him in the lake of fire. There are great theologians that are never going to see heaven. Because they've never been born again. So saving faith, first of all, originates with God. <laughs> Saving faith leads us to obedience. Saving faith also, now here's where we purify our souls. Once we have been saved, the Holy Spirit gives us the ability to die to ourselves and to fill ourselves with the Lord. Purifying our souls, saving faith causes us to want to be more like Jesus. You ever wonder why some new Christians take off for the Lord and it seems like they grow quickly and they mature quickly and then some Christians it seems like they just sit on a pew for 40 years? The difference is one Christian purified his soul. The other Christian's still busy learning how to die to himself, right? That's what saving faith looks like. The ability to supernaturally love is a gift from God when we are born again. Listen to me this morning. If you're having trouble loving God or loving your fellow brothers and sisters, can I suggest that you check on your relationship with God? If your relationship with, you don't need to try to love your brother and sister harder. You need to ask God, is my relationship with you right? Because if your relationship with God is right, you're going to supernaturally be able to love. Well, we were enabled to love at salvation. The second question our text answers is, who are we to love? The second part of verse 22. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit in sincere love of the brethren. We are to love each other at salvation Believers become part of the worldwide body of Christ, the church. And the church then becomes a target of our supernatural love, both locally, and by locally I mean Old New Hope Baptist Church, 
First Baptist, Fairview, Cross Point, whatever the local church is. But it also, we're, we're to supernaturally love the brothers and sisters in China and Russia. And when I hear of my brothers and sisters in Egypt being martyred for the Lord, it breaks my heart. I pray for them. I pray for their boldness. Because I love them. Have you ever heard someone say, well, I, I love God, but I just don't think much of church. I love God, but I sure have a hard time loving his people. Y'all, we don't have that option. We're called to love God, but we're also called to love each other. John 4 and verse, or 1 John 4, verse 13 tells us, Beloved, if God loved us, we ought to love each other. If Christ died for us, here's what I want you to do. Don't call any names. Don't point at anybody. Don't raise any hands. But I want you to think of the Christian brother or sister that you know that is the most difficult to love. There's some folks that are easy to love, right? They're lovable. See, there's some folks that are hard to love, right? I want you to think of the Christian person that's the hardest to love. Y'all know something? Jesus died for them. And if Jesus loved them enough to die for them, Shouldn't we love them? You say, well, how can I do that? It's a gift of the Spirit. we got to die to ourselves. The reason why we don't love them like we should, it's us. we got to get past our wants, our needs, our desire, our feelings, and love them. Notice that it says this love is a sincere love of the brother. That word sincere means without hypocrisy means not being hypocritical. Have you ever had somebody say, I love you, and you know they're lying? <laughs> you know they don't love you? They have to say it because they're at work. Or they have to say it because that that's not the kind of love that we're talking about here. He says it's a sincere love. Romans 12, 9 and 10 says, Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love, and honor giving preference to one another. Notice here that sincere love, first of all, is a standard for all believers. Sincere love, that's the goal. That's the standard. Not just for those that are hard to love, but sincere love for all Christians. And that sincere love for all Christians rises above my preferences. That sincere love for other Christians rises above the way I think things ought to be. You know, I think everybody ought to wear blue clothes to church on Sunday. Uh, and if y'all wear blue clothes to church on Sunday, then uh, 
it's easy for me to love you. And even though you think you ought to wear yellow clothes, then I'm not going to love you as much. I love the blue people more than the yellow people. See, we don't get that choice. Somebody says, I like piano music. Someone says, I like guitar music. Somebody says, I don't like any extra music at all. We worship God anyway, right? Our job is to love each other. Some folks might like blue carpet. Some folks might like hardwood. Some folks might like white paint. Some folks might like off-white paint. Some folks might like pews. Some folks might like theater seats. Did you know you can worship God in either one? And we are called to love each other. I know and you know of churches that have split because of the kind of music they sing. Or what color the carpet is. I know a church that split over what color they painted the classroom walls. Y'all, that ought not be. Loving each other is a command. It's not a suggestion. And the only way we can love like that is if the Holy Spirit helps us. Amen? It's a command. Sincere love is a standard for all believers. Sincere love is above all earthly limitations and considerations. And did y'all know that sincere love for each other can be used by God? To attract a lost world and awaken it to its need of salvation. John 13, verses 34 and 35, Jesus tells his apostles, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. As I have loved you, you also love one another. By this, that's your love that you have for each other. All will know that you're my disciples if you have love for each other. I'm going to say something here. It's going to sound a little bit controversial. And uh, I haven't thought this all the way through, so I hope it comes out in the way that, that I mean it. But I think in our generation, and, and maybe in past generations, but I can only speak for for my generation, what I've seen, and in my experience. We Christians have done a pretty good job of telling the world how they ought to live. Uh, they ought not do this. They ought not do that. They ought to do this. They ought to live this way, dress that way, walk this way, talk this way. And you know what? They should. But you know what Jesus said? Well, first, you know what Jesus did not say? Jesus did not say the world will know that you're my disciples because you all dress right, talk right, have the right doctrine, have the right Bible, have the right this or have the right that. Those things are important. But the signal that tells the rest of the world that we are Christians and we are Christ followers is the fact we love each other. And as Christians in my generation, I don't think we've done a very good job of showing the world 
that we as Christians love each other and care about each other. Christian social media, we cut each other down. And can I say that there's a time to stand for truth? Don't, don't take what I'm saying and turn it into something I'm not saying. What we believe, our doctrine is vitally important. I believe every word of the Bible is inspired of God. I believe that's our guideline for life. I believe it's our guideline for church activity. I believe it's our guideline for our everything we do is God's word. I'll die on that hill. But y'all, I can have all the right doctrine in the world without love. I'm missing the boat. Keep your finger here. I want you to turn to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. You ever want to read somebody else's mail? You know, somebody, you get your neighbor's mail and you wonder what it uh, what it says and what... Well, when, when we read Revelation chapter 2 and 3, Jesus wrote a letter to the seven different seven churches of Asia and we get to read their mail. And the first church that Jesus writes to is the church at Ephesus in Revelation 2 verse 1. To the angel of the church at Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil, and you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars, and you have persevered and have patience, and have labored for my name's sake, and have not become weary. Basically, verses 2 and 3, doctrinally, you guys are doing a lot of things right. Keep on. Verse 4, however, nevertheless, but I have this against you. You've left your first love. Doctrinally, you've done a lot of good things. You got the right doctrine, but you forgot that it's all, the motive is love. The motive is Jesus. And notice what verse 5 says. Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Y'all, if we have the right doctrine without love, we stand in need of repentance. Now can I say if we have love in the wrong doctrine we also stand in need of repentance? But we've been called to love. And that love can bring a lost world to Christ. I said this morning in the announcements that I feel blessed to pastor this church because there are lost people in our community. There are church people in our community that are looking for what we have here at Old New Hope. And that's a church that loves each other, that cares about each other, that when we're missing, somebody calls, sends us cards, wonders where we're at. 
I told you the story about when I was in driver's training in high school. My driver's training teacher, one of the places we drove, I said, Coach Wilson, where are we going today? He said, I've got this visitation card from church, and I need to go visit these people. So I drove him to the house, and uh, he went and visited, and I stayed in the car. When he came back, I said, well, did you get your visit done? He said, yes. He goes, I've never been so embarrassed. I said, what's the matter? He said, I told him we were glad that they visited with us. Come to find out they've been coming to church there for a year, and I'd never met them. Y'all, our city's full of churches that way. People look for love. People want to be loved. Now, let me tell you, small churches can be mean, hateful, and clickish too. So just because it's a small church doesn't mean there's love there. And just because it's a big church doesn't mean that there's not love there. I don't want to stereotype churches. But y'all, one of the best ways we can draw our lost family members to Christ is to love them. One of the best ways we can draw our surrounding community to Jesus Christ is to love each other in such a way that it spills out to our community. So when were we able to love? When we were born again. Who are we to love? We're to love the brethren. How are we to love? That's the next question. That's question number three. How are we to love? Verses In verse 22, since you've purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently. Fervently is a physiological term, meaning the Greek term means to stretch a muscle as far as it can possibly stretch. To stretch it to its capacity. It's kind of like when you have a, a trainer that's trying to train an athlete and he's pushing an athlete's leg back just a little bit further and a little bit further. He's fervently trying to get that muscle to work, to go to its furthest capacity. What Peter is reminding us of is that we are to love each other with that same fervent love. Look at 1 Peter 4, verse 8. 1 Peter 4, verse 8. And above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. What Peter is saying here is that we're to love and keep on loving. We're to stretch that love as far as it'll go. We're to forgive and keep on forgiving. Stretch that forgiveness as far as it will go. And did you know the more you love somebody, the easier it is to forgive them? How many times have you forgiven your children and grandchildren pretty easily because you love them? The same works in the Christian life and the church as well. Some folks it's easy to forgive because they're loving, they're kind. There are others who say things or have done things that are that's hurtful. And it's hard to forgive them. It's hard to love them. Y'all, when that happens, can I suggest you remember how much Jesus loves you? 
And that what Jesus did for you, what Jesus sacrificed for you, that ought to make it easier to forgive and love that person that's harmed you. And finally, why are we to love? Verses 23 to 25. And we're just going to look at verse 23. We're going to put pick up there and segue into next week's lesson because this paragraph really goes down to verse 3 of chapter 2. Having been born again, that's why we're to love. A fervent spirit is consistent with being born again in Christ. We have a new nature. Born again believers go from godlessness Lawlessness, selfish behavior to showing genuine repentance and love. What are you investing in this morning? Are you investing in things that last? And we're going to pick up this idea next week of the Word of God being everlasting. There are three different things we've talked about being everlasting, at least three. We've talked about so far in 1 Peter. We've talked about our inheritance, our hope, our salvation. That's everlasting. We've talked about the fact that our new birth is everlasting, our inheritance is everlasting. We'll find out the Word of God is everlasting. Next week we're going to talk quite a bit about the love of God. But what are you investing in? Are, are you investing in the perishable or the imperishable? Are you investing in corruptible or incorruptible? Are you investing in the things that you're going to leave behind? Or are you investing in the things that you'll take with you into eternity? If you've never been born again, can I tell you that I don't care how much earthly possessions you might possess, that spiritually you're bankrupt. Your earthly possessions will get you so far, they'll, they'll take you to the grave. But that's as far as they'll go. Maybe this morning you, you're not a Christian, you've been, the Holy Spirit's working on you. You think, you know, I, I'm getting older and I need to make a change in my life. Why not start investing in those things that are eternal? Admit you're a sinner. Believe in Jesus Christ. Turn to Him. Confess. Lord, I can't save myself. Save me. Maybe you've done that, and if you've done that, can I ask you, how's your love life? How do I mean your love life with your significant other? I'm talking about how's your love life with Jesus? Do you love Him more today than you did yesterday? Do you love Him more this week than you did last week? Do you love Him more this year than you did last year? If not, who moved? Can I tell you that answer is not Jesus? Jesus is right there waiting for us. And maybe we're like those Christians in the church at Ephesus. Maybe there's some things we need to repent of. And return back to our first love. Would you bow with me?